What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Full Stack Whatever. I'm your host, Michael Omens, and today we're going to talk about a little bit of a different topic. I'm excited to bring you a conversation with Josh Harris. Josh is the founder of The Bon Vivants and the owner of Trick Dog, a legendary bar in San Francisco. We talked about the creation of Trick Dog, the context in which Trick Dog was founded, and the lessons from its first decade. We talked about his sobriety and how he looks at the low ABV and non-alcohol movement, and he also opened up about mental health and some of his recent lessons and realizations. Here is episode 41, Exceeding Expectations in Unexpected Ways. Hey, Josh. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm stoked to be here. You're not a tech person, <laughs> but you are adjacent to so many tech people. You are the founder and owner of Trick Dog, one of the legendary cocktail bars in the world, we can say now. And we've been able to say that for a while, actually. One of the most interesting things that you probably got designers' eyebrows raised on was your first menu, which was a Pantone menu. Oh, yeah, which, they loved us for that. Yeah, so immediately you get that attention. In a world, I think it was like 2013? It was January of 2013. Yeah, and that was a world where, sure, Instagram was around, but it wasn't like, follow me into this new thing that we found on mm-hmm. TikTok kind of vibe, right? So it was that early social sharing, oh my God, like something that is really notable and noticeable that then kind of creates this viral loop for people to want to come. Totally. And Instagram at that time was really a place where very creative people were starting to showcase their work. And being in San Francisco, I felt like we were seeing that, you know, we were in the front row for that. Mm -hmm. And with the neighborhood where Trick Dog opened, our proximity to a lot of people doing that kind of work, those people coming into the bar at that time, it created sort of a a perfect storm of attention for us creatively that we couldn't have anticipated. We just, you know. And then I think the best part about it is the work that you put in and the drinks that you made back Mm. that up really heavily, right? Some of the most iconic drinks from Trick Dog, I still think are from that first menu. We've made so many over the years, of course, but I remember every drink on that menu, like each one of them was just like perfect because of course, also leading up to opening the bar, we had so much time to contemplate what the perfect offering was to Mm -hmm. open this thing that we were spending so much time on. And we joke that Trick Dog was the most anticipated bar opening of 2010 but we Mm -hmm. opened in 2013. (laughs) So things that we had originally planned had a coolness life cycle Mm -hmm. prior to us even opening, like ideas that then got done all around the world that people were excited about and then no longer were cool. And we had to come up with new ideas, both, you know, in terms of how we were offering things, the flavors that we were using and whatnot. So once it came time to actually design the drinks for that menu, I mean, it was really just sort of like a collection of all of these things we had learned along the way. And of course, after that, then everything came on a six-month cycle. To kind of set the stage, almost as if we're looking at a PowerPoint and like an agenda, yes, you are one of the people that started Trick Dog, really important place, and also Bon Vivants and like all of the work around that. A couple of other interesting things about you is that you you started a run club, mm-hmm. but you're also an ultra runner. And then separate of that, you also do a lot of non-alcoholic consulting and you're mm-hmm. kind of like, paving the way when it comes to non-alcoholic beverages as well. So we'll we'll probably run through that a little bit, but cool. You know, this is like kind of to give a little context to a lot of the tech folks that are listening and are like, 
why is there a non-tech person on this <laughs> podcast right now? I would love to actually go to the start. You, you already started digging into it a little bit, kind of the start of Trick Dog mm-hmm. and where it came from and like what led you into Trick Dog actually? What were you doing before? Like how, how did Trick Dog actually come to be? So the short story of this early chapter like many people, was that I wanted to do something else. And then I found myself doing the thing that I was doing and questioning whether that was the right thing to do mm-hmm. and having a few aha moments along the way. The thing that I thought that I wanted to do was go to law school. And within the context of this story and sort of weaving into things that we'll talk about later in the show, I got sober uh, November 14th of 2003. Those people doing quick math, that means that I just celebrated my 20-year yeah. sober birthday a few days ago. It was a big milestone. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, I had been a bartender prior to getting sober while I was in college. I felt drawn to it because I was living a, a dark and indulgent lifestyle and being in a bar facilitated me doing that the way that I wanted to do it. And after I got sober, I felt quickly drawn back to wanting to be in that environment, but for very different reasons. When I was 22 years old, I felt I wanted to still be hanging out with friends, trying to meet girls, being in a social environment. And where that happens is bars when you're 22 years old. That's what I, where I thought it was. And I certainly wasn't going to just like kick it at a coffee shop and talk to strangers. I felt like if I couldn't live my life the way that I wanted to, then the alternative was to just lock myself at home and, you know, hide from everything. And that didn't feel like a healthy choice. And so when I was on the customer side of the bar with my friends, I dealt with a lot of social anxiety related to my decisions not to drink. And uh, I found that later to be pretty normal. Mm-hmm. But things like, does anybody notice that I'm not drinking? Is the, the glass in my hand, does this look like a soda? If I walk up to the bar and just order a soda, is the bartender going to say something snide or pass judgment on me? Should I go order a bunch of drinks for all my friends and then slip in a soda water and bitters so that I can't be singled out as the person who's not drinking and so on and so forth? And when I was on the bartender side of the bar, all of that was gone. Mm -hmm. I felt completely insulated from those sorts of social anxieties that I would have on the other side of the bar, both because it was, you know, there was a purpose for being there, of course, but even like the physical piece of wood that is the bar that is between you and the people, something that I've talked a lot about with people in my profession that it's really a protector against those sorts of anxieties that people face you know, throughout their lives. And so I started bartending again. And fast forward a handful of years, I had you know, graduated from college. I had done quite well. I had started at one school, gotten sober, gone back to another school, you know, put all of this focus and effort into excelling academically as a marker to sort of you know validate my decision to get sober and you know mark whatever that progress was and was this law school no this was undergrad okay undergrad and then i applied to law school at the school that was my alma mater 
and I wasn't accepted. And it was completely heartbreaking because it was the first thing in my whole, you know, chapter of of that journey that had not been, you know, what I had wanted to have happen. And statistically and numerically speaking, I should have gotten in. And so there wasn't really a, you know, there wasn't really a, an explanation and that was hard for me. And looking back on it many years later now, of course, it's easy to sort of just say, oh, well, you know, this was cosmic intervention. That wasn't what I was supposed to do. That helped me sort of find this way. But at the time I was like totally crushed and I was bartending. I was like, well, I'll just reapply next year. Didn't. And now we find ourselves in the mid aughts and somebody says, we know these people that are opening a restaurant down the street, they want to do a cool cocktail program. You should talk to them. And I was working at a place that was like the anti-cool cocktail program spot. It's like fun, highballs, beards, shots, jukebox. And I went and talked to these guys. And they're like, we want to have a cool cocktail program. They had ambitious kitchen. They wanted to have an ambitious bar program. Can you do that? I was like, of course. and i cruised around town i mean granted you know this wasn't the stone age so the internet did exist but by comparison the access to things that we had on the internet at that time was like nothing compared to what we have now and certainly the media resources that have you know flooded the drinks business did not exist at that time you know there were a few bloggers here and there so i was really like kind of going around town getting cocktail menus from the handful of places that were celebrated absinthe restaurant, Nopa, uh, Bourbon and Branch, Rye, Cantina, which was a place that existed at that time. And they were all like pretty respected spots, the Alembic and what my point of view was and how I was going to do it. And at that place, I started to be able to apply elements of what connect me to my profession now, I started to see them at that time for the first time. But I couldn't really label them the same way that I could now. But the labels that we put on them now are like, you know, flavor journeys, flavor exploration, hospitality, culinary elements. Um, Those things, you know, we didn't really understand that those were so important, but they were certainly something that was like, you know, they, that you could feel, I guess it's, you know, we weren't using that language then. It wasn't like, oh, I'm here because I love delivering great hospitality to guests. And it just wasn't like that yet. Not that that didn't exist, but certainly not on the drink side of it. And so, uh, you know, again, fast forward through all of that, I sort of then progressed through different cocktail bars and different sort of entrepreneurial opportunities within the drink space to be connected with brands and, and do events, and lend our reputations to things and whatnot, and continue to learn, continue to develop my own sensibilities about uh, flavor, guest experience, uh, design. And 2009, I think it was, started the Bon Vivants, which really at that time was more about being a company because we're saying we're a company. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, opportunity is going to come to us because we're just saying that yeah. this is what we are. Yeah, creating this credibility right. by just having an entity. Yeah. Exactly. 
made a Facebook page, got a business card, you know, went out looking for opportunities and they started to come. And the first opportunities were consulting for other restaurants that wanted to have high profile bar programs. And then we started to work a lot with brands and throwing, you know, trade experiences for them. And then we started doing advocacy for different brands, managing advocacy programs. And, you know, we sort of had this mentality that if it was creative and it had to do with drinks, that we could do it. And that we were going to bring a perspective that was a boutique, if you will, rather than sort of like the cubicle marketing companies that many of the big brands were working with, uh, you know, in some of the other major cities. And so we were building a, you know, a pretty, cool reputation. And I think that reputation is what led to our opportunity to open Trick Dog at the place and time that we did. And, you know, people say something about luck. We're on the spot here, so I I don't know if I'm going to get it right, but it's, you know, luck. It's like knowing, you know, doing all the things that you do and then, you know, knowing when the opportunity is there to seize it and do it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like whatever that adage is, that's what happened. And we did a lot to really put ourselves out there. And I'm referring to we, I had a a partner at the time and we were really putting ourselves out there and trying to make a name for ourselves. We ended up getting the opportunity to open Trick Dog through a restaurant group who was wanting to open a bar as a part of its expansion with another business and was willing to essentially take a minority stake in our creative endeavor. And that had to do with the whole like 20th street kind exactly. of block. Right yeah, there, yeah, exactly. And so all of everything that it has become was our creative and they were able to support us infrastructurally and administratively, which having then gone on to have my own business grow and do those things on my own, I realized how significant it was that they were doing it for us. And how it really gave us the opportunity to focus on things that are what has made Trick Dog really special. And for young people coming into that segment of ownership at the time without the experience that they were bringing, it gave us an opportunity to learn those things intimately, to be connected with them. And so, you know, it was really, you know, we were on a plane at the right place at the right time, you know, to connect with people that enabled us to build this first business and ultimately give life to, you know, grow our company and our opportunities more. I, I really like this kind of this framing and I want to thank you for setting the stage for this. Uh, one of the things that I think of when I think of 2009 is that this is kind of just post or in, in the middle of the financial mm. crash. Did that have anything kind of to do with it? Like, how did that affect you? Was like, did you feel that when starting Bumpy Vons? It's interesting. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, this exact time. It was a real tough time for entrepreneurial spirits endeavors, people building craft brands to appeal to people that had, uh, you know, unique preferences and wanting to collect special products and pay the prices that come along with that and at an institutional level invest the kind of money that can build brands like that to sell and i was working with some companies in advisor capacities if you will at that time 
one person who's been a, a great friend and mentor of mine was over at my house yesterday and he was like framing part of our initial relationship with one another about being in New York and literally like everything <laughs> taking a complete tumble like the day that he was pitching for money for the brand. Mm-hmm. Within the context of the bar, I can't say that we really felt it within the context of some of the other work that we were doing. We felt it, but also you know, looking back, the amount of money that was raised for Trick Dog was like a fraction of what it costs to build a place now. And so probably relatively speaking, it wasn't that hard to get it done, you know, compared to if we were doing, you know, we're, if we we're in another industry or doing something else, raising a lot more money. Mm-hmm. There is a theory that I've been throwing around at that is probably very ignorant, but I'm actually going to throw it at you now because you probably know way more about this than I do, which is being a millennial going through the 08 crisis. I had my first agency. We were two years in when everything kind of crashed. And what I saw around me was there were, and I was back in the Netherlands then, a very small town, but what I saw around me was a lot of people that were doing the jobs that were like quote unquote stable jobs mm-hmm. all of a sudden also started drying up. There were all these reverberations of the recession. And what I found when in 2011, uh, 2010, 2011, and eventually in 2012 when I moved to SF is that it seemed that a lot of very smart people that would have been in one of those kind of office, corporate jobs that they didn't really like, but it was a safe paycheck, all of a sudden were standing in front of me in coffee shops, in bars, et cetera. And because of their aptitude and their ambition and their tenacity, they became very good in their vocation mm-hmm. and on their path. I'm actually wondering, does that resonate or is that like something that's complete bullshit? It does. Over my journey through that era, I have seen so many people come into our profession with tremendous qualifications in other fields. And for not only the reason you describe, but some of the reasons you describe and some other influences, they have found their way into the creative drink side of hospitality and have stuck to it. Not to say that you need that kind of aptitude to excel in this profession, but there sometimes are very unique attributes that people with that experience bring. And I found that many of them, if they came in at that time, have found themselves excelling at certain entrepreneurial pursuits within the drink space. I guess to frame that a little bit more, at that time, it was like a frontier for our profession because anything that you could possibly think of that completes this sort of three-dimensional picture of an industry, none of it had been created yet. Publications, tech platforms, PR agencies, book publishers, all of it. It all existed for other industries and for food and all of that, but not for drinks, not in the craft sense like what we have now. And so people that were coming in at that time were essentially on the ground floor of something really exciting to you know start an agency be a publicist write books create an app whatever like anything literally anything that you could think of if you had the means and the resolve you could build it so a lot of people that came in under the context that you just described found themselves weaving through the bars and then out the other side to do something like oh i'm going to start this you know cool activations agency or something like that 
I'm, I'm really interested in this moment in time because there is the financial systems aspect of it and, and the recession. There is also a timing aspect of it where I think 2005, 2006, where, where, where a lot of the modern classics came along and when cocktail culture kind of went away from the cosmopolitan mm. like 90s mm-hmm. into something much more. You were bartending throughout that time. How did you experience that shift? Well, being in San Francisco, I experienced it different than if you were talking to somebody in New York. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, generally the way that I would describe the two schools would be in San Francisco, we were really taking this like Alice Waters, slow food, farm to table, culinary market fresh approach to cocktails. And in New York, they were digging back into the old cocktail books, rustling up all of the super old school, like Manhattan variations, cool whiskey drinks and and sort of speakeasy style things. This is of course like two generalizations, Mm -hmm. but not untrue. And of course those styles have blended a little bit, you know, or or a lot since then. But at at that time it was these two styles. And so for us, you know, we were doing a lot of original stuff. We weren't really like looking back as much as I feel like they were in New York. We were like, you know, how can I take culinary techniques that I'm, you know, seeing the chef in the kitchen do and uh, use that to make some ingredient that I can put into this cocktail. And of course, all of these are based on sort of like ratios and things that you learn in classic cocktails. But, you know, I think that we were really about sort of like creating drinks that were culinarily exciting rather than recreating stuff. Although I do know that the Alembic had the Savoy cocktail night and a couple people, one who was sort of um, a historian, an extracurricular historian, if you will, on the drinks and, and another who was a tremendous influence to us all who was running the Alembic at the time got together to say, if you came in, I think it was Sunday nights, and it was like, anything that you pick from the Savoy cocktail book, we will make. And there were a couple things, like a few ingredients at that time that like weren't available anymore or things that wouldn't come to the United States. And so there were things where they would have to like really manipulate products and try and figure out how to do it. And they would never modify the recipe. They would always make it exactly the way that the book called for. And there were no givebacks. It was like, if you don't like it, that, that was part of it mm-hmm. uh, because we've learned also that a lot of these old recipes that, you know, if you took the same ingredients now, we would put them together in different ways to create more balance and whatnot. And so they were really looking back at that time. And that was very exciting. I remember thinking that that was a pretty cool thing that they were doing. The Alembic was extremely inspirational for Trick Dog because the Alembic was sort of in my memory, the first place in San Francisco it was a freestanding cocktail bar with food where you know everybody sort of wore what they want they had their own personalities um, small size neighborhood but not a restaurant mm-hmm. like more a bar but with food that you know was uh, that they took a, a serious approach to and uh, you know really at that time if you said good cocktails you know, people would think of a speakeasy mm-hmm. and it sort of had to be packaged that way. And so when we saw that the Alembic 
was doing what they were doing and that you could go in there and feel the way that you felt when you went in there, we were like, oh man, this is the future. Yeah. And you said the word neighborhood, which is mm. very specific to Trick Dog as well, totally. where you know, you're know you on 20th between Alabama and Florida, mm-hmm. which is just for the people who are somewhat familiar with San Francisco, it's between Harrison and Bryant. Mm-hmm. Not Potrero Hill. It's not Potrero Hill. It's the mission. <laughs> people start to hear state streets and they think we're in Potrero Hill. <laughs> yeah, that's true. At that time, though, I mean, right now there's, you know, there's a site glass, like there was Central Kitchen, now mm-hmm. Penny Roma, there is Flower and Water Pasta Shop, previously Slumeria, mm-hmm. True Laurel is around the corner, Flower and Water is a block away, Lost Resort is like two blocks away, uh, there's El Chato, there's San Juan, like there's a lot there now. At that time, not, not so case. many things. Yeah. There was Atlas Cafe. Mm-hmm. And then Trick Dog and I think Central Kitchen kind of booted up at the same time, right? Yeah, so Flower and Water was there. And mm-hmm. it's a within the current renaissance of the neighborhood within the context of what we're talking about. Uh, Flower and Water would be credited for that. And I remember when Flower and Water opened and somebody was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> and people like line up to go in there before mm-hmm. serving. And we're, you know, a, a, a block and a half away from there. We were sort of the second ones in of this new wave. And us and Central Kitchen was in within six months. Sight Glass was six months after that. For context, Atlas across the street. Blowfish was probably open for 20 years at that mm-hmm. time. Blowfish was like a really big deal when it opened. And for many years. Blowfish sushi. for Yeah, Blowfish sushi. Yeah. And then the Slow Club was still open, which was also oh, you yeah. know, like a 25-year place yep. where the Morris is now. Uh, Which is also in like it's across the street from the Muni bus like right. lot, basically. Yeah. yeah. When when you think about the journeys that people would take from other parts of town to enjoy Blowfish and the Slow Club, I mean they were like real trailblazers back at the time when you know the sort of first wave of of neighborhood change that happened over there. You think about like also around that time was when Delfina opened and foreign cinema opened and the mission was a very different place when those restaurants were opening and the sort of the vision that they had to, you know, connect with a neighborhood and, you know, offer something like sort of forward, if you will. But there was nothing, you know, there was the J and B, which is where Lost Resort is now. There was nothing where True Laurel was. Cafe Gratitude. Oh, where was that? That was across from Flower and Water. Okay. Which is where Oh, and that that was like the is. Mihote, but that also was Sasaki before, and, and it was also the, the grilled great, cheese yeah, kitchen. Yeah, the great American grilled cheese kitchen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that was Cafe Gratitude. They made like smoothies and and stuff like that. Do you know about them? No, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was like a big, big class action lawsuit for like improper wage and tip distributions. Wow. Like way before people were talking about that kind of stuff because they had commissary kitchen where they were like prepping salads and fruits and things like that. And, mm. Also, when you would go in there and then you would order a smoothie or a coffee or something like that, they would do like a God thing. Okay. They'd like say, you know, like today's God thing. Yeah. And be like, you know, either you'd, you know, be into it or not be into it. Yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah. It was just like, you know, there was still something charming about it because it was like a neighborhood place, you know? Yeah. But, and it'd been there for a while. But yeah, the neighborhood, for any of the people listening that, have been to the neighborhood recently, I mean, they would recognize it as 
you know, something entirely different than what we just described. And now you have places like the Heath factory and showroom, yeah. the Tartine Manufactory, Ernest, San Juan that you mentioned, Mijote, Lost Resort, Gemini Wine Bar and yeah. their bottle shop. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a real sort of drinks and dining and drinking destination. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where And before, Liliana is there. Yeah, and yeah. Liliana. Yeah. And Osito. When we opened, there was no connection between, let's say, the Valencia side of the mission and where we were. To go from over there to where we were, people get an Uber. Yeah. You would look down that stretch between like Folsom and South Van S, like Treat and Cap, and it was like, you know, it was kind of gnarly and yeah. people wouldn't walk it. And now you see people walking and then they get to the neighborhood and they can just like walk all around, hit a bunch of different spots. It's so cool. You, you I'm, I'm literally just jumping off a word. You just mentioned Uber. Uh-huh. Um, I think in a city like San Francisco, and, and I can't say, I didn't live here. The black cars had just landed mm. when I got here. And I remember I, you know, I got here. I had joined Instagram. We were on South Park. I was biking to work all the time. And I gave myself like a two black car per month budget in case it was like, pouring rain yeah. or something that was like the limitation that i would just take one of these cars getting a taxi in san francisco was horrendous so getting around to a place like the alembic which is in or is it still there it's still there right it is but in a sort of like a new incarnation yeah. yes but it, which is an upper hate, hate yeah. it, that that's that is a trek that 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 involves buses or biking mm-hmm. definitely not something that you walk biking then, up a hill biking up yeah pretty steep hill as well but then if you look at you know, the the start of Trick Dog, UberX was around, I think, or it was just about to come out. So mm-hmm. the mobility in a city like SF, 10x probably. Totally. Which must have had a ton of impact on kind of that first wave of folks that walked in the bar all of a sudden. I think so. We, we often joke that uh, you can gauge a restaurant or a bar's success by the number of Ubers that are showing up in front of it and dropping people off. I'm sure much to the chagrin of all of our neighbors, <laughs> um, which is real. There were a lot of Ubers coming to the neighborhood. I'm sure that you also understand, though, the duality of Trick Dog's personality and that we are first and foremost a neighborhood bar. Yep. And that people that live around it or in walking distance to it made it one of their spots and that was our goal was to connect with those people. It turned out that along the way, word spread that we were doing cool things uh, and people wanted to come from other areas to enjoy a drink there. And so, you know, we sort of became like a neighborhood bar and a destination bar at the same time. And I'd say over the years, you know, maybe there's like different times of the day where you can see that. it more, yeah. you know, m- more in one light than the other. And certainly I know that all of our real, you know, close proximity neighbors, like they love being there in the early afternoon. Four to seven. Oh yeah. They know that Trick Dog gets like the best light and they love being in there at that time. And, uh, you know, of course later on the Friday nights, you know, people start to, to roll and you're just like, oh, where are all these guys coming from? Like they're, you know, they don't live around here. It's just cool to be both of those things, I guess. I want to talk through the like lifespan of Trick Dog now Mm -hmm. because it's been a decade just over a decade. Yeah, so January will be 11 years. Also surviving COVID. Mm-hmm. Very important, also very gnarly thing. 
I suspect. Throughout that time, every half a year, you would drop a new menu, which is a giant creative endeavor, especially because at the the top of the episode, you mentioned how much time you had for kind of that first pass. How did you guys eventually ended up approaching it and kind of operationalizing this to make it sane work environment? Because my guess is you're operating on the one menu. I know you do like a twice a year shutdown, like a small Mm -hmm. shutdown. But my guess is that the menus are locked in then, basically. Oh, so yeah, by that point, they're definitely So like, in. do you start the menu? Is it like, you know, car manufacturing? Do you start the new menu like on the day that the, the current menu kind of boots up? Or how do you do it? So to paint the picture that anybody listening doesn't know, we create menus that are drastically different artistic form and offerings every six months. And we set out to make a menu that was its sole parameter was essentially that it wasn't like a menu from an optics perspective. And that's when we came, you know, with the Pantone menu. It looked like a Pantone paint guide. And the way that we arrived at that was through a, a couple different thought processes. The first being that we just saw them around our build site so many times that at one point there was this kind of aha moment that would be a really cool way to present information. And then what sealed the deal was that paint colors make outstanding cocktail names. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went through that process, like literally just picking paint colors based on their names. Ones that I remember, the baby turtle, Witchwood, gypsy tan, grandma's sweater. These are great names. Uh, we knew that we were going to change our menu every six months. Premise of it was twofold. The first being that we don't have four seasons here in San Francisco. And being sort of market fresh style, like I was talking about before, there was this big emphasis on creating seasonal cocktails at the time. And you know, creating four menus for seasonal cocktails in San Francisco makes absolutely mm-hmm. no sense. And so you know, we kind of have these, you know, spring and summer style and the, you know, autumn and winter style. We also felt, and I guess it's worth noting that the Alembic changed their cocktail menu every six months as well. And I remember that being a particular point of conversation for us. We're like, well, why do they do that? What could be the reasons that they do that for? And the other thing that we thought was we were at that time believing we were responsible in some ways for helping people become more comfortable in a space that you know really was kind of misunderstood at the time. We have to remember that at that time we were making things with products that people hadn't heard of. They weren't like reading blogs all the time to learn about different brands or different categories of spirits and we weren't, you know, 10 years down the road with people's comfort levels. So they were really I'd say less adventurous than they are now. Mm-hmm. And we felt like having the menu for six months gave us the opportunity to build a relationship and trust with our guests via the drinks and that they would have the opportunity to explore over a menu, work through different layers of sort of how adventurous that they wanted to be, and then find a cocktail that they loved more than anything, come back and drink it several times crave it mm-hmm. and then have it be there long enough that when it went away, they weren't too sad about it. Yeah. 
And uh, that all has worked out really well. Those were the only things that we decided at that time. Little did we know we were getting ourselves into like the gnarliest creative calendar that we just sometimes we feel like we're in quicksand. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the biggest challenge of it all has not been the creative part. It's being creative on the timeline and knowing that the timeline cannot change because of the parameters that we've put around it. And sometimes it's come easier than others. Sometimes we already know what the next menu is going to be because in this conversation, so many ideas get thrown into the hopper at this point that it's never like one unique idea. People ask us, for example, how long does it take to come up with a menu from concept to execution? We're like, it's never like that anymore. Like the thing that we're going to do next, it was probably an idea five years ago that just Mm -hmm. somehow tumbled around our conversations like a piece of sea glass until it was like, oh, wait, that's the final touch. And now we can do this one. From an execution standpoint, then it just becomes like graphic design, printing production, depending on what we're doing. The ideating part is the most challenging. And the thing that's challenging about it is to figure out where the intersection of form and concept is. Because most people, when they enter into this conversation with us, they're long on concept. Oh, let's do a this menu or that menu or this menu. Oh, we'll make a baseball card menu. And it's okay. Well, what would it be like? Oh, well, you know, it could be like a binder with the sheets and the baseball cards in it. We're just like, that's not cool. That's just, you know, like that's too easy. That's just a form. Right. You know. Because then it's like, for what, right? And then sometimes you have ideas that you like go a little further and then it's like, okay, well, we could like make it into a, a magazine or something like that. And it's like, yeah, but this, this is too expected. So I feel like we've really challenged ourselves along the way to have interesting form and concept that, that intersect at the right place. Some of them have been like smashing successes. Some of them have been like harder for us to pull off because we're just fighting and One of my former colleagues, Morgan, who is a tremendous creative, and I had this realization prior to the launch of the Whole Dog catalog, which was a riff on the Whole Earth catalog. We were doing something else before we had decided to do that one. And we were beating our heads against the wall. And he looked at me and he goes, I feel like we're a bar that's trying to make menus like Trick Dog. Basically, we went on to sort of recognize that we were challenged to not become like a caricature of ourselves, And that menu was like really hard. It was really cool for people that knew what it was, but also lacked a lot of the functionality that we had prided ourselves on with other menus in terms of user-friendliness and whatnot. There's always sort of been those challenges. Along the way, we've you know self-published limited runs of books. We've used our menus as a public art project in one case that did 13 murals around San Francisco. We made a cookbook with like 14 of the most celebrated chefs in the world, which happened to be here in San Francisco. Uh, We've made a children's book. All of these menus we sell and sort of go into the hopper with a number of other things that we do to raise money for prior many nonprofits that we felt were connected with the menus, like arts nonprofits, dog nonprofits, and things of that nature. And now we have our own scholarship where we funnel all of that money to. So the menus have really been the hallmark of Trick Dog. And anybody who comes to Trick Dog and knows it, if you picked one thing that makes it special, it's the menus that we do every six months. And I think then paired with the hospitality, the friendliness that you get from the people that work there, putting that 
sort of like very high concept dynamic into what is otherwise a very casual and cool spot. You said a word, and mm. so I'm going to jump off of a word again. You said the word people. Mm. And one of the things, you know, having come to Trick Dog now for over 10 years, that I've always noticed is the people start at Trick Dog and then they get a, a like master's education in cocktail making and in hospitality. There have been a lot of people that have come through the Trick Dog mill that you are, yes, you are a bar, but you are very much also a university. Mm. How do you look kind of at the diaspora of Trick Dog? bartenders, barbacks, any part of staff. It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable, the accomplishments of everybody who's been a part of Trick Dog. I was reflecting on that today, actually. We were awarded something pretty cool by a publication called Punch. They awarded us a title of industry icon, which is the first year that they've done it and essentially defined the award by the description that they gave to us and sort of described it as, you know, continued innovation and year over year thought leadership and, and creativity. And so I was reflecting on how many generations of people there are that go into making that. People that have never met before, like people that work for us now that make Trick Dog completely memorable and special night in and night out, have never met the people from 10 years ago who were the first to establish that fact about who we are. They are vastly different ages, different generations. So that's pretty cool. In terms of the people that have come through and gone on to do other things, I mean, the, the, the list is remarkable. I will say that I think that it's been one of Trick Dog's shortcomings that we were not able to teach and train people as well as I would have liked to in the years prior to the pandemic. We had versions and times of ourselves where we were better than others. We gave a lot of effort to developing some of our support staff into becoming bartenders. And we were able to get it to a place where really like we weren't hiring very many people to be bartenders that all of the people who would become bartenders would you know, start off in a support position and work their way up. And that was very cool. But I feel like a lot of learning that went on at Trick Dog was also by osmosis and that we were lucky that the place was great. And it was like, oh, well, if you're working here and your eyes are open and, you know, you participate, then you're going to get better. And it's been a particular point of pride for the company that when we reopened after the pandemic, that we prioritized being better than that and have created uh, a program now that has been running for a year and a half to participate in the development of all of our team and not by level, like not specifically for people in support positions or specifically for people in you know full bartending positions and whatnot. And I feel like it's made even more of a closeness and it's, I feel like we're delivering on a promise that we should have delivered on a long time ago, where people want to work for us because of the reputation that the bar has and the Bon Vivants has, and then they go there, they should be in a position to get some of that. And so we're delivering that 
now in ways that I think are really like becoming more of the mark of our company, or at least the things that I want our company to be marked by. That's awesome. I yeah, I really enjoy hearing that because it the osmosis part that you mentioned very much to me was apparent throughout the time. It was very like you saw folks in support roles and all of a sudden they were at the bar. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone was clearly closing up for the night or like starting to take on some of these like uh, leadership roles uh, over time. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to hear that there's like kind of more of like process behind it now. One of the things that I noticed specifically with the last menu, and I maybe should have paid more attention at the uh, museum of trick.art one potentially, but Specifically with the, is it the yoga menu? What is it specifically? Yeah, tantric dog. The tantric dog menu, yeah. (laughs) The percentage of non-alcoholic cocktails on that menu is really high Mm. compared to what you would normally find in a bar like yours, but generally like just about any cocktail menu that I've seen. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you're 20 years sober I have also noticed from following your Instagram that like you do a lot of consulting and, and kind of a lot of teaching when mm-hmm. it comes to uh, to like non-alcoholic cocktail programs. You mentioned this point of when you're standing at the bar, there's this anxiety when you're not drinking. Then you become a owner of a bar that then becomes pretty legendary while you're sober. And now as this decade of you know, people getting more comfortable with like kind of adventurous beverages, but also having been drinking these pretty high octane beverages for a decade. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks are going into the low ABV and and sober periods in their year or completely sober. Mm-hmm. Seem like it's very aligned with a trend, but I think that there's more of a an openness to hear this message. How have you experienced this like, as a sober person? I, there's always been like something on the TikTok menu, but I've seen it grow and grow. Like, how do you look at the industry going forward in context of sobriety? It is a very exciting time for non-alcoholic drinks. At Trick Dog, we have always had a very robust non-alcoholic drink program ever since the very first menu. That is always proportional to where we are and the format in which it was presented was different. But from the very first menu on the Pantone menu, there were drinks without alcohol, like cocktail-style drinks without alcohol. We offered two non-alcoholic beers on our first, our very first menu in 2013. We also offered probably a half a dozen vintage-style regional craft sodas, like Dr. Brown's Original Celery, Moxie, Cheerwine, etc. We really wanted to be a great drinking place, not just a great cocktail bar. And I recalled at that time, you could go into a place that prided itself on having good cocktails and good wines and good beers and good food and all that stuff here in San Francisco and ask for a non-alcoholic beer. And they just look at you like, you know, you were an alien. For me, I found that to be quite insulting that what I considered to be a significant segment of people was not being, uh, you know, sort of looked after the right way. So anyway, let's fast forward over this decade to where we are now. You know, I think that it's cool that you noticed that on this menu. 
And I imagine that the reason why you noticed it is because in the last couple years, we have changed the format with which we present our non-alcoholic cocktails. Prior to now, and what most places would use in their structure would be you'd have a list of cocktails, and then you know, you'd have a section of beers and your section of wines, your section of sodas, and then your section of, you know, non-alcoholic cocktails or zero proof or whatever people call it. It's in the back, it's small. If they present it. There's a lot of places that are just like, ask your server about our rotating selection of mocktails. And so we're not even going to go into that at this point. But I really, <laughs> you know, that's lame. What we decided to do was we decided to present the three main non-alcoholic cocktails in the same format that we present the other 13 alcoholic cocktails. What we're saying is that these are all cocktails. Some of them have alcohol and some of them don't. What they all have is a unique point of view, exciting flavor profiles, dope glassware, great aromas, great tastes, and so on. As you know, also at Trick Dog, we have cool secondary sections where we've always had like highballs, shots where we like make up creative shots or have like riffs on old classics that we turn into shots, boilermakers, and so on. So in addition to the three cocktails that are added into the 13 and presented in the main section of the menu, we also have one cocktail in each of those other secondary sections. So there'll be three boilermakers, and then one of them is a non-alcoholic boilermaker. In this case, you know the best day brewing Kolsch and uh, the Pathfinder non-alcoholic digestif, which is like an awesome combo. Why should somebody that doesn't drink alcohol who wants to be in this setting not be able to enjoy all of the different segments of how we've packaged what we do together? We have uh, a highball section. Somebody can have a Oloroso and Cheerwine, but somebody can also have a Martini and Rossi Floreale and Tonic in the same simplistic way, one low-proof highball, one non-alk highball, and bringing the same experience. Uh, with the shots, we had at one point a porn star martini shot, which was a famous cocktail sort of to use a, a, a label that you said earlier with a neoclassic. Uh, the porn star martini is a neoclassic, came out of the lab bar in London and it's basically like a sort of passion fruit shaken martini style drink with a sidecar of champagne. We turned that into a shot, you know, the way that we would do. And you would get the little porn star martini shot and then a little sidecar of champagne. And we also decided that we were going to make a soft core shot. And so we made us a non-alcoholic passion fruit martini and the lights non-alcoholic sparkling Riesling on, on the side of it. And all of this stuff. Basically, it leads to one place, and that place, inclusivity and hospitality. To me, offering these sorts of beverages to people is making them feel welcome in our place, no matter what their preferences are, and that we can deliver hospitality in the way that I define it, which is that we're exceeding our guests' expectations in unexpected ways. When we give a guest a cocktail like the Puppy Pose, which is a clarified punch style drink, many people would be bewildered that we would go through that process to do a drink that doesn't have alcohol. And it's like, well, of course we would. 
just because it has alcohol doesn't mean that it's better or we should focus more on it. In fact, maybe I could make the case it's the opposite because people who are not drinking for whatever reason, not just for the reasons that I don't drink, but maybe just even because they're choosing not to drink for a period of time, short, long, whatever, they're so used to getting a ginger mint limeade that when they get something sophisticated and adult, something that literally was crafted with their life choice for the moment or for their life in mind, they're just like, no way. That's crazy. You made this extremely advanced thing, extremely sophisticated, extremely time-consuming and expensive thing to make. And it's for people that don't drink alcohol at this cocktail bar. That is so cool. I would have never thought. Delivering those moments on a personal level, of course, is, is very satisfying for me. And I'm excited to sort of continue to push the envelope of what feels like the appropriate balance of how we offer things without alcohol within the context, of course, being a bar that is serving alcohol and, you know, financially speaking, making more of our money from alcohol drinks than non-alcoholic drinks. I, I really enjoy hearing you kind of go into this direction. And what it makes me immediately think of is something that you mentioned about the Alembic as well, which is the exceeding of the expectations doesn't just happen in the original cocktails and like the alcoholic cocktails. It doesn't just happen in the non-alcoholic cocktails now, but it, it also has happened and still happens in the food that Trick Dog mm. um, serves. The Trick Dog, the legendary kale salad, the nuggets now. How have you looked at like that combination of finding a bar food that is actually good enough to be a meal and how that combines with what likely is the main focus, which is the beverages? Well, our food program today is in some ways the same and in some ways very different than the one that we started out with. In 2013, when we opened, we had a more robust food program than what we have now largely credited of course to the you know the concept that us partners had at the time but definitely from an execution and creative point of view our original chef chester who made some very cool items and when we opened we received a visit from san francisco chronicles former illustrious food critic michael bauer who we knew. And so it wasn't odd that he would come and enjoy a, you know, a drink there. And then with a very short period of time after he came again and we were like, fuck, we're getting reviewed. Like we can't get reviewed. <laughs> like we're not that kind of place. Michael Bauer's reviews were always considered to be like pretty hard and you know, if you were lucky enough to get a good review, that would be awesome. But, you know, more noticeable was like when he would rip somebody, and yeah. it's just like, you're just like, holy shit. And, you know, we're like, man, this is like not, this is like, we can't have this happen. We were like, oh, should we like write him a letter and tell him to like to stop? We were told like, nah, guys, like the train's on the tracks. It's happening. And he, of course, then came for his third visit. Then in the you know expected period of time, the review hit the Chronicle. And literally, this review read like a love letter to Trick Dog. And we were given three stars, which 
you know, he basically defined as sort of like being the best in its class at what it does and sort of established that we were different than other types of places that he reviewed and sort of gave the criteria for why, you know, we were what we were. And it was like really moving for us, honestly. It was probably the first like really significant piece of press like on that level that we had gotten aside from just like opening stuff. Basically recognizing us, of course, for the food, but the way that the food played a role within the context of the entire experience of going to Trick Dog and that it was about eating and drinking and sort of convivial moments between people like in this kind of setting, which was totally what we were going for. So it's been a really important part of what makes Trick Dog what it is. But moving along to where we are now, we reopened out of the pandemic with a much more limited menu than what we had at that time and and what we kept up until the time of the pandemic. And the reason why we did that is because during the pandemic, we decided that we were going to incubate a new concept. I felt very strongly that if Trick Dog could not be Trick Dog, then it wasn't going to open. And that the experience that people have at Trick Dog is very special. And that experience cannot be delivered in a plastic cup on the sidewalk in a parklet. And so we needed to alter our concept to be something that could be special on the sidewalk in a plastic cup in a parklet. And this thought exercise is what led to us coming up with the idea for a quick dog, which is, let's say, a contemporary but nostalgic burger and dog spot for kids of all ages. And we really wanted to focus on the food and the core food items that we had at Trick Dog, which you'll, of course, know is the famous Trick Dog, which is a rectangular-shaped hamburger on a hot dog bun, the mountainous kale salad, the thrice-cooked fries, and the nuggets. Everything else people liked at Trick Dog, but from a sales percentage wise, it wasn't even close. Like these were the items that we just sold like tons and tons of. These are staple items. We never changed them. We always changed the spring salad. We never changed the, the trick dog. So we're like, let's do this. You know, we created a couple more things. We, you know, created new nuggets. We made a chicken sandwich, which is the nuggets on a hot dog bun, you know, with the same set. We made a mission dog thing. We sort of put together this little, this sort of package. We did that for like a year and a half. And it's become now the exciting next chapter of what our company is doing, which I'll come back to. But when we reopened Trick Dog, when we got to a place where we were like, okay, people are starting to become comfortable being inside again. People are starting to be comfortable being in close proximity to one another. We picked the date. And after 18 months, we reopened Trick Dog. And that was really exciting. It was a complete rebirth of the bar. I had a lot of soul searching about what it was that I thought made Trick Dog special, what things like we needed to stand firm on that we needed to strive for. We had probably about 25 employees before throughout the years, and we have 25 new ones that came onto the team when we opened. And it really gave us the opportunity to think about, you know, what does this next segment of the life of this business look like and how are we going to accomplish it? From a food point of view, we were like, 
well, maybe we can do both of these things. What if Trick Dog can come back and Quick Dog is the food at Trick Dog for purposes of keeping Quick Dog on DoorDash, for example, and mm-hmm. trying to like have these little places where we can keep that brand alive in advance of knowing exactly what we were going to do with it or what opportunities were going to come. So people would go into DoorDash and they could like look at Trick Dog and they could look at Quick Dog and it was still there. And we kept the Quick Dog Instagram. We kept the Quick Dog website and so on. And we got the opportunity to do outside lands and Bottle Rock. And we continued to do the bars. And then we added in the food of Quick Dog at West Coast Craft every year since it's opened up. And so we were getting these moments to sort of go beyond just where the bar was with Quick Dog. Last week, we just signed uh, a deal that we've been negotiating for a year uh, with the Giants, the San Francisco Giants, the baseball team. Well, preface everything with, I am a native San Franciscan. I've been to all the World Series. I was at 1989 earthquake game at Candlestick Park. Like The connection to the Giants is so cool. And we're going to be building the first permanent location of Quick Dog in a new development that the Giants have built on McCovey Cove right at the edge of the Third Street Drawbridge will be the closest restaurant to the Third Street Drawbridge with a bar and a big outdoor area. And you know, when I think about Quick Dog coming out of a time when everything was just like so dark and that, you know, we of course have heard so many stories about like sparks of excitement and light that came through the pandemic. This was the one for us. And uh, what felt like something we were doing in many ways to protect Trick Dog turned out to be a thing that like got a light of its own. And now it's going to be, you know, the next step for our company to to do that. That sounds really awesome. We're stoked. And thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. It's just going to be a, you know, it's probably an equidistant walk for you in the other direction. When I know. Up. I know. <laughs> Actually, yeah, could be. I would love a quick dog at the Chase Center, by the way. That would yeah, be nice. Unfortunately, <laughs> radius restrictions and all. <laughs> ah, damn it. Um, I, I really appreciate getting so much color and, and perspective on Trick Dog's lifespan, the challenges. I also really like your critical eye on some of these things because it's easy for a lot of people to just talk about the good parts and the shiny parts, but to like also call out, hey, the food program isn't mm-hmm. you know, where it was before, but that's by design. We're very aware of this. The, the internal kind of education and growth program now is much more uh, robust than it was before. Like, it's really nice for me to hear And I think for a lot of people to hear that color and kind of like those angles, I would actually love if you're okay with it to talk about Josh now for a second, because one of the things that I noticed and, you know, there's something related to your sobriety. There's also something related to your mental health that you're like pretty open about Mm. when it comes to your workout routine Mm -hmm. and the running that you do the kind of BV run club that came out of that and, and, and a lot of the other stuff that you do now. Do you mind kind of taking us on a little journey? Like I'd throughout be happy that? to. Yeah. Yeah. So as we've discussed, but should be, I guess be noted again, I've been sober for 20 years. So everything has to do with that for me. Everything. Challenges that I face, it has to do with that. The successes that I've achieved, it has to do with that. It all ties back into that. Three years ago, I had uh, a few very challenging episodes occur. I started to feel funny. I went to the hospital. I thought I was 
having either a heart attack or a stroke or an aneurysm or like some kind of thing that, you know, was going to be putting my life at risk. And, you know, they did tests, didn't find anything to be remarkable. I went back another time uh, a couple weeks later, twice on consecutive nights. Each time that I went to the hospital, as part of the intake questionnaires, they would ask me if I had a, any history of anxiety or panic. And I said, no, because I didn't. You know, they would continue on with the other tests and they were doing blood and scans and I wore a heart monitor and all sorts of stuff. And the fourth time to the hospital, uh, when I came back, my wife had, um, you know, been doing some research online and was like, you know, at the risk of provoking another episode, I think it's possible that what you're experiencing is panic and anxiety based on what I'm reading, panic attack, anxiety attack, and so on. One of the things that was hard for me to get my head around the understanding of that is that the label that the medical world has put onto these panic attack, panic disorder, anxiety disorder, it doesn't match with what my experience was because it didn't feel like I was panicking and it doesn't feel like what I understand anxiety to be. You know, as a former high school going into college athlete, you know, I experienced a lot of what I would describe anxiety to be, you know, butterflies in your stomach and, and that sort of stuff. The things that I was feeling, they didn't feel like that. You know, I felt like I was going to die. And uh, because the label and the experience didn't match, that was really challenging for me to understand that as my experience. But as I had some, some moments of being calm where I could read about this stuff without it provoking me, I was able to accept the possibility that's what I could be experiencing. And so when then I presented that back to the doctors, like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. They were like, okay, well, there's, there's two ways to go about treating this from you know, this Western medicine perspective, and that is talk therapy and medication. Well, well three ways, or a combination of both. So I went gung-ho into that. I also was seeing like energetic healers and acupuncturists and people that I would like have, you know, almost like spiritual therapy with as opposed to just like regular psychology. As uncomfortable as it's been, it's probably been the greatest blessing of this era of my life because it has completely changed the way that I interact with myself, with the world around me, with my loved ones, reconnecting with other humans, destimulating. I've changed almost all of my habits entirely in an effort to sort of understand why it would be that could have happened to me after you know, 39 years of life at the time, 18 years sober at the time, and then all of a sudden that starts to happen. And I don't think that I will ever know, medically speaking, why it happened. I don't think that they can know. I don't think that I can know. But I do understand factors that I think contributed to it based on an exploration of 
what the medical world does know about panic attacks and what we can piece together from my life and the way that my childhood relates to it, the way that my, you know, addiction relates to it, and, you know, and so on, right? I am not free from it because I don't think that it's something that can just go away because if it could just happen for the first time when you're 39 years old, then you could obviously go another 39 years, never have one, and it could just happen. But I have been pretty good as far as like not being uh, crippled by like the anticipatory anxiety that many people have about panic, where it's like, you know the fear that they may have another one. I've done a lot of work on that. It relates, you know, pretty intimately with my athletics, which is I know something that you brought up as well. But pushing myself through ultra endurance athletics, you know, has put me on the edge, and I have found myself in situations where. I am experiencing sort of versions of panic and anxiety, you know, degrees of panic and anxiety many times after a run, sometimes during a run, a couple times in races. Uh, even this last weekend, I felt this flutter. I got like super hot and I felt like a moment of dread and terror. And then I was like, oh my God, like, what if I have to, what if I have to, to, to like quit now because of what I'm experiencing. The difference now is that when I experience those physical feelings, I don't have as much fear of the unknown. I'm sort of pretty quickly able to recognize it's like, oh, this is panic. This is like, you know, something related to that as opposed to being like, oh, like is my heart, <laughs> it's something going on with my heart or something like that. I'm able to, you know, in many cases kind of just like talk my way through it and this weekend, I was able to say some things out loud, essentially on the one-year anniversary of me developing this kind of mantra that relates to my running. And that is that success for me in this area comes in strength in the balance between the heart, mind, and the body. So it's not the strength of those three things, and it's not the balance of them, but it's the strength that comes from the balance. So think of a three-legged chair, right? Like the three-legged chair, if they're all in balance, like you're solid. And the heart, the mind, and the body, I talk through it like this, like I'm doing with you right now, and I'll be like getting a little bit turned up, and I have to like reveal more nuance to this as I'm going. And some of that nuance is like, okay, if you have a relationship of strength between these three things, then if one of them gets out of balance, the other two will, will act as you know, the savior for that one, the strength that will pull it all back together. In some cases, if two of those things start to go out in separate directions, if you're really practiced at this, then everything will come back into balance. What I've found is even just like talking about it out loud to myself in some cases, is almost a distraction technique from the physical feelings that I may be feeling. And uh, obviously, the content of what I'm saying rings true to me, but also the, the discussion of it with myself also has proven to be sort of like a, a navigation tool for me. You know, applying a label of sort of mental health challenged person. Uh, was never something that I thought would be one of the things in my life. You know, at almost 40 years old, it's like, you know, you kind of you assume that you sort of know what you're working with at that point. The 
opportunity that this has afforded me to rediscover myself, to have a higher connectivity with myself and the world around me, which may seem a little bit redundant, but that's something that I've sort of, that exact phrase has been something that has been like something I've been able to articulate as a very motivating thing for me in terms of like trying to put my phone down in terms of not watching as much TV, in terms of reading books, in terms of spending times with other humans, in terms of trying to experience empathy in real ways. And this is all stuff that I'm able to contemplate more now, pretty much out of necessity, but I understand now the benefit of it. I think that for 18 years, which is when this first one happened, I don't think I felt anything for 18 years. I think that somehow I, you know, at the risk of having to fuel things that wouldn't be numbed by drugs and alcohol, I was able to just not feel things. And over the time between then and now, there were things that would happen in life, like people dying where I would not cry. And then I would question whether I was supposed to feel something differently than what I was feeling. Am I supposed to experience this in, in another way? Am I less than? Because I don't care. Uh, or should I experience love like more than how I experience it with the people that I dated along the way, you know, before I met my wife and it's like, is this supposed to be different? Really happy things and whatnot. And so when all of this started to happen, when I turned 39, I mean, <laughs> the biggest thing that I could describe all of that as was feeling everything like to the max so intensely that it was like sending vibrations through my existence and making me feel like I was going to die. It was like, you know, as I have images of it, it's like the door opened a touch and literally everything just slammed out. Of course, in the initial parts of this story where I was going to the hospital, that wasn't what I understood. But soon after when I started you know, going to therapy and understanding that it was panic and starting to talk about what that meant, I was like, oh, okay, this is, you know, something that I was able to deduce and get to the bottom of. And it, you know, it's been such a blessing that I can feel things now that I'm starting to recognize feeling love and feeling sorrow in ways that are not intellectual, but emotional. There were situations that would happen. And intellectually, I could say that I was angry, but I didn't feel anger. I mean, can you imagine like, the distinction between that? Because I know that I'm supposed to be angry and I can say fuck, but I wouldn't experience that anger physically or love or sorrow. And now I'm, you know, in the last three years, beginning to re-recognize feeling on an emotional level and not an intellectual one. And that's as you would imagine, kind of scary, but also leads to a much more complete life and certainly one that I think is 
better suited for me, better suited for if I would want to have a, a child in this world and you know, being able to be in touch with them at some point and share my experiences with them and help them through their way and just, you know, not feeling like I'm just kind of detached and out here. I feel, you know, connected and in it. Wow. That is really, really powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I have one final question. Have you felt that this shift in yourself is bringing about different things that you want to bring into the world? Like it, it, it seems to me that there may well be a connection between investing more in that growth program at, at mm-hmm. Trick Dog and the you know growth and empathy and kind of this like explosion of, of feelings on your side. I, it wasn't visible to me if you've been doing a lot of this non-alcoholic consulting and mm-hmm. a lot of this, you know, I'm not I'm going to say preaching, but I mean it like not yeah. necessarily in that way of like bringing the knowledge that you have and the experience that you have into the world. So others will also hopefully expand their horizons on non-alcoholic beverages like like what what do you what have you felt that is potentially different now the way that you professionally present yourself as well well i certainly am excited to share experiences in my life that could help other people navigate challenging situations in their and not in like an AA kind of way, not uh, you know, the thing that keeps me sober is helping others. It's not like that. I think the more that we talk about this stuff, then the more out in the open it all is. And the more accessible that information is means that the less scary something might be for somebody else. Um, the world, I feel like, has much more open arms to this idea now than when you and I were growing up, for example, just the, the generational differences, the way that our parents were probably raised and the way that their generation raised us and uh, you know how different it is now than that time, particularly with respect to addiction and to mental health. I don't feel like it's my duty to share these things, but I certainly recognize that as we all have notable experiences and characteristics that make us who we are. Some of the ones that we've talked about today are mine. And uh, so I've been enthusiastic about sharing those things because I don't think that there's anything to hide. And uh, when I started experiencing panic at the point when I felt comfortable sharing that with anybody, you know, it probably comes as no surprise to you that a lot of people told me that they had experienced the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when you learn that other people have experienced the same thing and you can have a conversation with one of them about it, all of a sudden, you know, things seem a little bit less scary and uh, you, you know, become more confident that you're not going to die because of what you're feeling. So sharing some of those things, even if it's just like, you know, an Instagram post, you know, talking about an experience in a race, like I always put those things on, hey, you know, I just had a, you know, a few minutes of feeling this way. And then I did this and it was cool. And uh, I was grateful for that happening because now, you know, that made the adventure all that much more adventurous. I always find that, you know, there are people that respond to that and, uh, you know, I've been in that position before. So I'm hopeful that 
my experience will be able to help other people encounter the challenging things in their lives from a professional point of view you know i think it makes me more human i feel more human to the statement that i made earlier about wanting to have a higher connectivity with myself and the world around me i feel certainly more connected with the people that uh, work on my team i have a desire to be more connected with them i have a genuine interest in their lives reconnecting with friends from my past and and whatnot so in terms of what comes next yeah i think that experience will set the tone for the company that we want to be the values that we have the personality that we have what the experience is going to be like for the people that work for us and hopefully be a place of caring and empathy and that is something that our guests will feel translated in the experience to them, but also something that the teammates also experience between one another and experience between the people that manage them and so on. Because the world feels hard for people at a lot of times. And so not feeling alone, particularly around the people that you spend like the most time with, that's something that I think is a responsibility of ours. And through my experience, I think I'm you know, sort of more aware of that and, and better suited to, to build a, an environment that's going to be you know, built on that foundation. This is an amazing thing to end on. I want to say thank you so much for coming on here, but mostly thank you so much for sharing so many personal stories and, and being so candid and so open about all of this. This was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, certainly I'll take a big breath and, uh, grateful for having the chance to talk with you about it. Thanks for giving me the space. Thank you so much for listening. I deeply enjoyed this conversation as TrickDog is one of my favorite places to go, to bring friends, and to have seen evolve over the last decade. I'm also extremely thankful to Josh for his openness on everything we dug into. This is exactly why I love making this show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're looking for some other great episodes to check out, you can find them on fullstackwhatever.com. Thanks a lot, and I'll see you soon.